0: You have discovered the Christmas episode of the Felon File Podcast. Everyone here at the Felon File and the Scratch Ankle North Carolina International Podcasting Recording Studio, wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. Today's episode sponsored by The Salty Heifer Home Store and more Owner Patricia D. Priddy Located at 75 Roy Edwards Lane Mars Hill, North Carolina antique to new home furnishings, antique to new home decor, jewelry and handbags, layaway available, customer rewards program, consignments welcome, buy, sell and trade, North Carolina notary services available, call them at 828-680-9198, or can find them on the web at thesaltyheferhomestore.com. The Felon File Podcast is a discussion of law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lansford, retired police detective sergeant, author, and researcher. Scott's shade of blue story for tonight is a story of a Christmas murder, man hunts, train and ship pursuits, shootouts with the government, and unexpected victims. This is Victoria, your producer for the Felon File. Scott, your microphone is on. 2. 1.
1: Go. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out, and welcome to another episode of Felon File. This Saturday is December 25th, Christmas. So, Victoria and I thought it would be fitting to have, to have a Christmas shade of blue for you today. Well, this didn't actually happen on Christmas. It happened the day before Christmas and made a very hard impact on several families. And, of course, today is December 25th, and we're posting this in 2021. And if you'd like to listen to this a little bit later, just keep that in mind delete that Ashland Kentucky in 1881 nice uh, little city located in the Appalachian mountain areas or on the fringe of it. it was a neat orderly little city situated on the Ohio River life in general was not super exciting in Ashland and Kentucky and that's the way a lot of folks there liked it as in any town and it had its share of crime robberies thefts and of course, the occasional homicide. The few homicides that did happen were usually up-and-up stand-up fights over a card game or over a lady, a couple of individuals wanting to express their opinions while slightly intoxicated, that sort of thing. Investigations of these type of situations were usually fairly easy and quickly, and quickly solved and closed out. A typical family of the area at that time would be would be the Gibbons family. The Gibbons had three children. The oldest was Robert, age 17, who had unfortunately lost a leg a few years before this in an incident involving a rare railroad freight car that ran over his leg. The youngest was Sterling, who was 11 years old, who thankfully had the good fortune of not being home on the night our story begins. And then there was the daughter, Fanny. Now, Miss Fanny was described as physically developed beyond her 14 years. Fanny had learned what it took to get attention. Fanny was a neighborhood favorite with a magnetic personality and the looks to match. Outgoing and very cheerful, she had many friends and some unwelcome admirers as well, as we'll see. John Gibson, the father, wasn't home a lot. Now, it was easier that way because John and his wife did not always see eye to eye, and it made it easier on everyone when the two were separated as much as possible. Although John worked odd jobs and did provide for his family, he was gone a lot of times for weeks at a time. He did provide the income and support of his family about as well as anyone else in the area. And the mother, Martha Gibbons, by all accounts, was a, was a caring mother, and the family seemed to be okay, pretty much, uh, according to the rest of the community. Now, early in the morning of Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1881, while most of Ashland, Kentucky slept, a fire at the Gibbons small-frame house started. It didn't take long for the alarm to spread throughout the neighborhood that one of the homes was on fire. In a matter of minutes, neighbors rushed to the flames that lit up the sky, working to get the fire under control, at the same time attempting to get into the side of the house to look for anyone who may have been trapped there. They eventually did find three bodies, which were quickly dragged out from the flames. Those present recognized the bodies as being Franny Gibbons, 14 years old, her brother Robert, 17, and a neighborhood friend, Emma Carrico, 15 years old. Physicians arrived and three of the local doctors on the scene made a startling announcement that all three victims had had their skulls smashed. And that was what caused the death of the three children. Evidence was also found that led the doctors to conclude that the two girls had been sexually assaulted as well. The fire, it was assumed, had been set to cover up the crime, the homicide and the assaults. Now news of the incident quickly spread and the entire town was seen up in arms. In an uproar, the brutality of the crime itself was horrific. The facts that the victims were all young people, and children, and the assault occurring on Christmas Eve contributed to a lot of the unrest in the community. According to one newspaper, the horror was almost more than could be comprehended by decent people. Who could have done such a thing? Everyone agreed that no one would be safe until these murderers were brought to justice. Now, when daylight did arrive... A more detailed search of the crime scene was conducted. Bloody sheets and pillows, as well as an axe and a crowbar, were discovered in the smoldering ruins of the house. Mrs. Thomas, the mother of Emma, was questioned. Emma Carrico was her child from a a previous relationship. She stated that on the previous evening, at around 6 o'clock, Mrs. Gibson had stopped by her cottage and asked if Emma could stay at her house overnight to keep company with Franny and Robert. Mrs. Gibson and her son Sterling were going across the Ohio River to Ironton to visit another daughter and they would be gone until the next day. This was not that unusual at the time. As was normal, Mr. Gibbons was off working somewhere and it would be nice if the children had some company. The Thomas House was just across the street from the Gibbons House, and Miss Thomas readily consented. Now, it was, of course, December, cold and clear, and the neighbors reported hearing children talk, talking and laughing up into the early evening until it was time to go to bed. The neighbor, Mrs. Thomas, mother of one of the children, had gotten up around 4 a.m. to start her morning day, this, of course, being Christmas Day. Looking outside her window, she saw everything seemed to be okay over at the neighbor's house. A little bit later, around 6 am, Miss Thomas looked out across the street at the neighbor's home again. At first, everything looked normal, but then she noticed an unusual light flickering through the windows inside the Gibbons house. She watched for a few minutes and the strange light kind of grew. For a while and she realized that the interior of the home was on fire. That was all the information investigators could come up with at first, none of it helping to lead down to a possible suspect or suspects. Two days later, on December 26, an overflow crowd turned out for services at the Methodist Episcopal Church where services were held for the three victims. Afterwards, they were buried in a common grave at Ashwood Cemetery. That afternoon, John Means, who was acting mayor, called a meeting to raise money for a, for a reward and to hire detectives to find the murders. Over $1,000 was raised in just a few days. It's quite a bit of money for 1881. With that much money as bait, private detectives came from the out of the woodworks in their surrounding states. One law enforcement officer, Deputy U.S. Marshal Helfen of Mayville, Kentucky, had the backing and the support of the town, mainly because at that point he was the only one who had any sort of official authority in this investigation other than, of course, the sheriff. This may have been true, but it was another detective, a detective, J.B. Norris from Ohio, private investigator. He announced his first theory, and it was published and covered by the local papers as well. The killer, according to Norris, undoubtedly was John Gibbons. In other words, he felt the father had done it. There was little evidence to substantiate this charge, and curiously, the fact that one of the rape victims was his own daughter was overlooked by the detective. Now anyway, even with nothing else to go on, so much of the populace was caught up in what was purely an assumption of guilt. Even the Cincinnati Inquirer, the area's largest newspaper, was calling for the arrest and a guilty verdict being issued for what they referred to as the Fiend Gibbons, wanted posters with the detective's information and and images of John Gibbons were distributed and mass-produced by not only the newspaper but other private uh, printing agencies and companies, and these were distributed throughout the area and beyond. Meanwhile, the actual law enforcement officer with authority of any type, Marshall Helfand, had serious doubts about the involvement of Mr. Gibbons. Now, he actually felt that the murders had been committed by more than one person. And there was also the fact that no motive could be established uh, showing that Dad did it. Helfen realized that before the investigation could get back on track, Gibbons would have to be found and cleared of any charges and allegations. So on New Year's Eve Saturday, December 31st, he was able to locate Gibbons in a remote area of West Virginia where he was working at the time. Finding the father healthy and finding the father, of course, he had the responsibility of breaking the news to Givens on about what had happened as he was completely unaware of the tragedy. The two rode back to Ashland, Kentucky, where Givens was quickly exonerated by proof that he had been in West Virginia the entire time that the homicide must have occurred. Humiliated and brought to now to be a scapegoat in the local papers. Detective Norris caught the first train out of town, and Elton became the lead detective and investigator. A few days later, a man walked into the Ashland General store, a store owned by Gregor Powell and Ferguson, and he purchased a cigar. Mr. Powell was the proprietor that waited on the man. And he knew him slightly as a regular customer by the name of George Ellis. Now, making conversation, Powell asked him, Well, now that old man Gibbons is in the clear, I wonder who is it going to fall on now? Now, at this statement, Ellis was clearly startled, vetting the gaze of Powell. And Ellis turned pale and his hands began to shake, according to the store owner. After regaining some sort of control, he blurted out that he had a a clue who it might be, and then he started mumbling something about state's evidence. Before just abruptly turning and walking out the door, under were the accusing eyes of Powell. As Ellis began walking, it seemed to him that everybody was staring at him with accusing eyes. He was thinking, Do they know? He asked himself this over and over again. After walking the streets for hours, Ellis eventually found his way to the hotel where Marshall Helfand was staying at and Helfand invited him into the room. At George Ellis introduced himself and said that he lived near the Gibbons house and might know something about the killings. After being seated down, Ellis asked to if he would be so kind as to explain to him the legal meaning of state's evidence. Now, Helfen informed him that any one guilty of a crime could inform on the others in that crime and would likely get a lesser sentence than the other guilty parties. Now, that explanation seemed to have the desired effect on Alice, and, and he made the statement that he wanted to clear his conscience by telling what happened. well, Helfin, known for his skills as an interrogator and an interviewer, knew he had to act quick before Ellis changed his mind or decided not to talk. As a deputy U.S. Marshal, he knew the law and what was required to get a confession that would impress the jurors and hold up in court on review. Quickly, he located some witnesses to observe getting a statement from Ellis. There were at least two versions of the first confession that were made uh, implicating himself, a William Neal, and a George Craft. But the two statements that were taken that day, they vary slightly, uh, one being much more graphic in details than the other, that this is because the information was documented by two different men during the interview. What I have for you today is the less graphic statement that was recorded and placed into evidence or reading from the court text. A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met with Kraft who stated he was going to go see Fanny Gibson and take her some black candy and that he was going to have intercourse with her and he wanted me to come along. About midnight that fatal night, we all started and Kraft, Neil, and myself, and when we got to the house, Kraft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in real fast. Neil followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards I went in the door after they had unlocked it. Robbie was the first aroused and started to get up when Kraft said, you had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. The older brother, Robbie, said, You had better stay away from there. Kraft hit him in the head with the axe, and he fell back onto the lounge and sofa he was sleeping on, then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from from the bed under the stairs where he was found later. The girls screamed, and when Kraft jumped on the bed, they both said, George Kraft, what are you here for? Emma also started to jump from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him, and he held her while he outraged her. Neil then struck her on the head with a big end of a crowbar, and she instantly died after throwing up her hands. Kraft also had some troubles with Fanny Gibbons, and called for me to come and help him. He then outraged her and then killed her. Neil had proposed killing the girls. And after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over their bodies, and set fire to them with a match. We then left the house. Ellis claimed they had been talking, Ellis claimed that they had been talking the matter over for several months, and that on one occasion, while they were working in the backyard together, Emma Thomas passed by and Neil swore that he intended to have carnal communication with her before Christmas. Kraft had said similar statements about Fanny Gibson. Ellis would subsequently make more confessions, or recant an earlier confession, each made to fit the prevailing circumstances that he was in. Kraft and Neil were immediately arrested and taken to the county jail in Cattlewood. In Catlinsburg, about five miles away, and remarkably were placed in the same cell with Ellis. And it's not surprisingly, after a night in the same cell with Kraft and Neal, Ellis changed his confession that he had made the previous evening, but it was too late. News of the confession had not been released to the public, but as word would spread, nevertheless, it soon spread that the three men had been arrested in jail. For many, that was sufficient to take matters into their own hands and talk of vigilante justice was in the air. Anxious courthouse officials began to receive reports from a mob of a mob being organized in Ashland with plans being laid to storm the courthouse and seize the prisoners. The court, fearing the worst, ordered the three to be sent to jail in Lexington, Kentucky for safekeeping. Accordingly, they were placed on the uh, Cattlesburg Ferry and started down the Ohio River. But the mob heard about this, and it didn't take them long to start a pursuit in another steamboat. After what was described as an exciting chase, the officers finally eluded the mob and arrived safely in Lexington, Kentucky, during a stopover in Vanceburg. A few reporters were allowed to board the vessel and interview the prisoners. Kraft and Neal, who were shackled together, were eager to talk and were joking and singing with the guards, but solemnly protested their innocence and were confident that the real murderers would soon be found. Ellis, who was shackled a distance away from the others, didn't want to talk to anybody. Now, once arriving in Lexington and being in jail, George Ellis once again made a statement in which he said that his first statement was not true. That he had been forced to make that statement by the Marshal, George Helfen at the point of a gun. He didn't acknowledge that he... He doesn't acknowledge that he... And he didn't mention the fact that he himself had found the Marshal and tracked him to his hotel room and asked to speak with him himself without any previous contact from the marshal. On January 16th, William Neal and Kraft were brought back uh, for trial after being moved uh, due to the fact that they were afraid of a lynching happening. Neal was put on trial first for the murder of Emma Carrico. There was little condemning evidence produced by the prosecution one woman said that she saw ellis and croft and neil the morning of the murder about a half mile away from the murder site others said neil was uneasy following the murders and told them he feared suspicion jd house a man who had helped remove the bodies from the burning home testified that he saw neil standing 50 feet away from the blaze itself in the crowd that were watching in this case, there was no actual physical evidence presented at all. Then the prosecution produced their star witness, George Ellis. The defense had hoped to see a wild, crazy man take the stand, and like they heard he was acting like. Instead, Ellis was calm and composed and unwavering in his testimony. What I have now is from the court transcripts. Ellis says, I have resided in Ashland since May, have been engaged as a laborer at Powell and House Brickyard most of the time. I am acquainted with the prisoner, Neil, also with Kraft. We three worked together at the brickyard. I did not see right. either of them during the day of December 23rd. I saw them later that night. They came to my house and called me. I was in bed and asked what they wanted. Kraft told me to get up if they wanted to see me. I did so, put my clothes and boots on, and went out to the gate. Kraft told him that he was going to have to follow him. Kraft told him that you must go with us. I asked him where, and he said to the Gibbons, and we will have some fun. I told him, no, it was too late. I won't go. They said, I have to go, and Croft drew a revolver. Neil said, just bring him along, and then they they all started out. When we got inside the gates at the Gibbons, Kraft picked up an axe and Neil a crowbar from under the porch floor. Kraft pried open the window, and Neil was the first to go in. Kraft was next. I did not want to go in, but Kraft drew his revolver and said, Come on, and I did so. They took the axe and crowbar in the house with them, and we passed through the front room to the second room in the middle where the girls and Robbie were sleeping. Kraft and Nell went to the bed where the girls were. Kraft took hold of Fanny Gibbons, and Neil took a hold of Emma. They stifled the girls by putting their hands over their mouths and choking The noise woke up Robbie, who was sleeping on a lounge in the same room. Kraft, who had choked Franny near to death, left her and struck Robbie in the head with the axe and killed him, and then returned back to the bed. Neil dragged Emma off the bed and onto the floor. Kraft ordered me to hold her until Neil accomplished his purpose, which is what I did. After Neil let her up, she began to rise up, crying, and said she was going home to tell her mother. Neil said, I guess not, and struck her on the head with a crowbar, and she fell back dead. Craft ordered me to come and help him, and I went to the bed and put my hand on Miss Gibbon's shoulder, and Craft outraged her, after which he got the axe and killed her. Craft then said to me, You have done none of the killing." You must have a hand in this, and ordered me to get coal oil and pour it over the dead bodies of the girls. I did, and Kraft the set them on fire, and we left the house. When we left, we got separated. i going home. I don't know where they went. I got home at about half past three o'clock, and my wife made breakfast. I laid down but did not go to sleep. I heard the cry of fire about half past five when I was at breakfast. I went to the burning house but did not stay long. He then went on to describe how the following Sunday the two men had threatened him if he decided to talk and pointed out that he was involved as much as they were. The defense team was actually headed up by attorney Thomas R. Brown, who incidentally, and it's a coincidence, I'm sure, was the son of the judge sitting on the bench, Judge Brown, that was hearing the case. The key witness for the defense was Miss Ellis, who, who was called and testified that she woke up at midnight and then again at 4.30 a.m. and her husband was there each time. She said she had heard no noise and did not believe her husband left the house that night. Earlier when visiting her husband in uh, jail, Miss Ellis was overheard pleading with her husband to just tell the real truth, according to a newspaper article whose author was actually in the jail when it happened, supposedly. Oliver Hampton was called and he testified that Ellis said in front of him and A.C. Campbell that both Neal and Croft were innocent. Several reliable witnesses were called to prove Neal's character. Mrs. Neal was present, crying at times, while Neal sat at a table and wrote notes on a pad. He was described as a good-looking, much younger-looking man than he really was. He was 36 years of age, with white hair, and a dark mustache, and he had two children and a wife. The prosecution and the defense rested on February 6, 1882. Only 17 minutes of deliberation, the jury found Neal guilty and sentenced him to hang on Valentine's Day of that year. A few days later, Kraft was convicted on the same evidence and also sentenced to the gallows on the same date. February 14th. During the three trials and follow-up show-ups, George Ellis would confess and then recant a half-dozen times, each with a greater conviction than the other. In February 1882, he made a statement to a Cincinnati newspaper in which he said that he and two African-American men that he had hired committed the murders that he alone had been involved with a sexual assault and had killed the girls while his accomplices held them down. He said as they crept away from the Gibbons' house that night, he saw Kraft and Neal walking along the street and decided to put the blame on them. A few days later, he denied ever making that statement. In May of 1882, Ellis was returned from Lexington to stand trial again, to stand trial. Throughout his trial, his wife sat beside him, often in tears. On June 2, 1882, he was found guilty, and since he cooperated, he was sentenced to a life imprisonment. Most observers thought the sentence was befitting because of how he helped with the prosecution of the other two men, and hoped that the whole thing would be over and the case could be closed now. Unfortunately, crimes of this nature are very seldom closed and forgotten easily. That night around midnight, a group of about 20 men with black hoods covering their faces over about 20 men with black hoods covering their faces went to the engine house of the Cincinnati Railroad in Ashland and ordered the watchmen to hitch up two flat cars, after which they proceeded on to Catlisburg. They arrived around 3 a.m. in the morning, halting across the street from the jail, in converging on the jail they demanded the admittance they demanded admittance which was refused and they ended up storming it by force george ellis was soon led out he was taken back to ashland kentucky where he was hung on a sycamore tree near the site of the murders witnesses said that ellis met his fate calmly and though he knew this time was coming and made his final statement as in his original confession, he said that he, Kraft, and Neely were guilty. His last request was that his body not be mutilated. He declined the opportunity to pray, saying that he was prepared to die. The sycamore tree stood about 100 yards from the burned house. On the same tree, on the same limb, was a swing that the neighborhood children all had played with and played on in happier days. The body of Ellis was allowed to hang there until the next afternoon when it was cut down by the coroner. Death was ruled to have been at the hands of a person or persons unknown, all wearing masks. Now, our other two gentlemen, Kraft and Neil, continued their appeal and won a new trial. Many people, both in Ashland and elsewhere, positively considered the pair to be innocent. As they saw it, if you take away the testimony of the deranged Ellis, what evidence was there? Considering that the pair won most of their appeals and execution stays, it would seem that the officials of the state government were kind of on their side and convinced of their probably being not guilty. All the while, the two were becoming nationally famous and received offers to tell their stories on a lecture tour, provided, of course, they were they won their court cases. Newspaper correspondents were common in their jail cell and often being interviewed regularly where, where they both expressed confidence that they soon would be released. Now the reward still hadn't been paid out to had been collected so there was still an occasional arrest. In June of 1882 two African-American men were charged by a black detective and arrested and brought to the county seat to be to be criminally charged. At the first hearing, the charges were thrown out. Afterwards, outside the courtroom, individuals grabbed the detective, they beat him, and he was shot in the leg by the supporters of the two charged men. Uh, the case drug on until the fall of 1882 when the prisoners were again sent to the county seat for trial under the guard of five companies of state militia. Responding to the threats of violence, Governor Blackburn threatened that if needed be, the whole county of Boyd would be killed if it was necessary to uphold the law. Mob violence, he said, would not be tolerated. Now as the trial began, an application for change of venue was made by the attorney of Kraft and Neal. Judge Brown granted the change of venue, and the new trial date was set for February 1883, two years after the homicide had occurred. This time, the trials would be in the neighboring Carter County. The prisoners were to be transported back to Lexington to await this new trial. Now, remember, this was a time period that was accustomed to quick justice, and the wheels were turning slowly, too slowly, to suit many people in the Ashland community. Where was the justice? What about the dead children and their still grieving parents? What are you guys going to do about this? That night, Major Allen, commander of the militia that guarded the prisoners, received information that a mob was forming in Ashland, whose aim was to use the George Ellis sycamore tree twice more. Abandoning the original plan for transporting the prisoners by rail would take them through the middle of this group of men in Ashland, Major Allen once again chose a riverboat. A passing steamer, the Granite State was the name of it, was requested to make the trip up the river. Actually, it was commandeered and they were told they were going to go up the river. As the steamer was being loaded, train arrived from Ashland with over 200 armed men and boys. The mob demanded that Neil and Craft be handed over to them. Major Allen refused, and the rest of his troops boarded the Granite State boat and started downstream with the prisoners. Now the mob, not to be outdone, reboarded the train, which ran along the sides of the river between Kalisburg and Ashland. They kept up a hail of gunfire upon the troops on the steamboat all the way to Ashland County. It should be noted that the militia did not return fire, merely moving to the other side of the boat, the side opposite the men on the train. At Ashland, the mob had grown, people wanting to know what was going on and curious, and a large crowd of people were congregated along Front Street, And the river bank to watch what happened as the granite state ship came into sight it was observed that the soldiers had concealed themselves behind articles from the boat that they had piled in front of them to basically make shields cover and concealment about 20 men and boys from the mob took possession of the ferry boat and swung out onto the river to intercept the steamboat Cooler heads argued with the 20 hotheads to let go, but the mob was not being very considerate. As the ferryboat approached the steamer, a few pistol shots rang out. With that, the troops had had enough, and the militiamen raised themselves in lines along the decks of the Granite State Ferry and opened up fire with disastrous effect on these men. Stunned and completely outmatched, the group aboard the ferry boat dived for cover as round after round was fired in their direction. Hundreds of rounds were thought to have been shot. Many fired wildly, finding targets in apartments and buildings for quite some distance away. Killed at once was Colonel L.W. Report, an aged citizen who had earlier been out, and tried to keep the mob from boarding the ferry, and a George Keener, young father, and Willie Survey, uh, who was 14 years old, and an Alexander Harris, who was 25 years old, they would all die within hours of their wounds. James McDonald, brother-in-law of the murder of Givens children, was shot three times as well. Mrs. Butler was shot in the thigh while sitting in the train depot down the street, minding her own business, and not involved in the situation at all. An inquest was later made into the matter involving the militiamen and the citizens, and after review was determined the militia was justified in their use of deadly force when they were fired upon first after many attempts were made to calm down the crowd and reach a peaceful solution. This type of activity continued in February of 1883, two years after the murder. The defendant, guarded by 10 divisions of state militia, was put on trial in Grayson, Kentucky before Carter County Circuit Court Judge Rice. The militia camped out north of town in what was described as a very wretched location very bad conditions of ice, sleet, and mud, and snow. One of the state militia men would end up dying from cold weather exposure, and several others were hospitalized. On February 23rd, at 8 p.m., the case was given over to the jury. After about 10 minutes, they reported to the courtroom, and one of the jurors, a Mr. Dean Hart, had taken L. It was later mentioned, or asserted in the newspapers, that one juror was opposed to capital punishment, that the delay was needed to, quote, correct his misguided belief, unquote. Judge Rice postponed the trial until the following Saturday morning, and the next morning, 21 minutes after the jury was out, they returned with a verdict of guilty. Everyone in attendance, except, of course, for Kraft and the defense team, seemed to be okay with the verdict. To be sure, there was no demonstration in court after the verdict was read. No clapping, no cheers were heard. Most of the observers did indicate their approval quietly of the verdict. The defendant, Kraft, was asked if he wanted to make a statement. He stood and cleared his throat and began a very impassioned speech that was also documented in the court records. He proclaimed his self as being not guilty, that he did not have a chance to put on witnesses that would, that would exonerate him. Quote said, you might as well take an innocent child and hang them as to hang me. And he had other things to say. He continued to say, I never thought of doing such a thing. I was raised better. And had more respect for the people about me. The respect Miss Gibbons, I am glad I can stand here and say that I am innocent. It is the truth. It is a put up job entirely. Gentlemen, the day is coming when I will be found innocent. All at once his speech was interrupted by Ms. Gibbons, who broke down and started crying. The judge set the date for the hanging to be May 4th, 1883. Friends of Kraft were untiring in their efforts to save his life, claiming they had evidence of his innocence. That they would produce this evidence at Neal's next trial court. And they urged for a respite of Kraft's sentence until that was done. Now the gallows for the county were located in the northeast part of town at the foot of a hill, enclosed by a 12-foot high fence you couldn't see over. The enclosure was 30 feet square, the gallows about 8 square feet, and had a 6-foot drop and a trap in the center. The site was chosen for the hanging was at the same location where the militia had camped and suffered their serious injuries in February. Kraft ascended the steps in full view of the crowd, accompanied by Reverend Pinkerton and the sheriff. Quiet was called for by the sheriff and Kraft was allowed to make a statement. He did so, proclaiming his innocence and sang a hymn, Did Christ Die for Sinners Weep, instead of a prayer asking for God to save his soul. Kraft stepped up onto the, door, the trap door, a hood was placed over his head, his hands were secured by his back, and with tears in his eyes and a tremor in his voice, the sheriff pulled the lever and sent Kraft on his way. The last defendant, Neal, was tried on April 30th, 1884, again found guilty and sentenced to death. Neal was sent to Mount Sterling, Kentucky, to await his execution. As was normally the case, Neal's defense team attempted to appeal the conviction again. They continued the case and the execution further back. Four years after the homicide, on May 3rd, 1885, Neil was placed on a train for a trip to him, his final trip to the gallows. He also made a farewell speech from the train station as he left, claiming he was being persecuted by Campbell and Redkin. He thanked the citizens of Mount Strong for their patience and their progress over the years, and he hoped to meet them in a better land. Once more, after arriving at the execution location, it was again postponed and Neil was returned to Mount Sterling for safekeeping. Finally, on March 28th, he was again brought to Grayson to hang. This time he was there and there would be no more appeals, no more more train rides. Firm and composed, he ordered eggs and bacon, coffee for supper and dinner and refused visits of ministers and other religious individuals. Neil's final words were, My friends, I say to one and all, You all know this is no place to tell a lie. I stand here today to suffer for a a terrible crime I did not commit. One day my innocence will be established beyond a doubt, but I assure you once and for all, goodbye. O Lord, thou knowest I am innocent. Into thy hands I commit my soul. I am innocent. Now the sheriff had timed the pulling of the trap believer with that precise word. Later, some of his family claimed his body, and he was buried on a hill back of his father-in-law's house near uh, Gat, uh, Kalinsburg. Now, were the three men guilty, or were they innocent? Well, we can second-guess or armchair quarterback the juries in the second appeal process for as long as you'd like. The truth of what happened at night in 1881 may never really be that. Prior to the homicide, it appears that all three of the accused men had simultaneously lived normal lives. At the time, it was thought that the odds were that all three men would expose that repressed side of their personality in a violent manner at the same time. Now, it's been quoted by many in history, including Churchill, Napoleon, Eisenhower, etc. History is written by the winners. Well, the incident in the court, and that goes without saying, but in reality, in this particular situation, Shade of Blue, who cares what the answer is. Well, the incidents in the court case are part of history. That goes without saying. But in reality, in this particular situation, Shade of Blue story, who are the winners? Thank you for listening. And with the new coming year of 2022, remember, if you have the opportunity to do something nice for somebody, sometimes the smallest actions can move the largest of stones. Be sure to come back next week at 7 o'clock for another Shade of Blue story on Felonfile. You can check out our past stories at felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Information on my books and past podcasts are all there. And other things that we are doing and some links to other websites that you might find of interest. This includes checking out our stuff pages where you can pick up a coffee cup or a felon file t-shirt. And as I've said in the past, nothing says leave me alone in the morning better than going to work in a felon file t-shirt and drinking your morning coffee out of a Felon File Coffee Mug. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate you all, and we'll talk to you next Saturday. Victoria, you got the control panel again. Go ahead and close us out. Bye, y'all.
0: You have been listening to the Felon File Podcast, hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author, and researcher. For more information on the podcast, more Felon File Podcast stories and Scott's books. ScottLunsfordAuthor.com, or felonfile.com. Today's episode sponsored by the Salty Heifer Home Store and more. We wish you and your families a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. If you don't celebrate the holiday, we still wish you loved and safe New Year. This is Victoria, producer and sound engineer. Thank you for listening.